You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. That, um, and Chris was laying down some, like, gospel R&B there for us for a minute. That's good. Uh, that song, we, uh, the song that we sang just before, Jesus, I Love You, nothing but the, the blood of Jesus. That's not how I sang that in church growing up. How many of you guys, um, how, some of you obviously grew up in a church background. How many of you sang that song? You did, like, the hymn style, the hymn version. Right, you're a kid and you're trying to figure out. I don't know. Do I go to this line next? Or that's so confusing. Didn't sound like that, did it? It's a little bit different. Can I ask you this? I was wondering this. Stand over on the side. We're singing it. I actually saw a few of you kind of wiping away a tear, and I feel that too to that song. I can't. I can't sing that song without feeling choked up. Anybody else? Like that one stirs something in you. And I was trying to think even in the moment. I'm like, I wonder why that one stirs something in me different. And and here's a thought that I had. Take it for what it's worth. Um, but, you know, God's spirit lives in us. God's power lives in us. And when we put our faith in Jesus, it says that he indwells within us. Like his, this, it's part of what Paul calls the great mystery of the gospel is that Christ is in you. And, and here was a thought I had is that the Holy Spirit that is in you was at the cross. And he saw it happen. When we sing about it, Nothing but the blood. Oh, how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Like the Holy Spirit that's in you that hears those words as you sing them 2,000 years ago was present at the cross and actually witnessed it happen. He saw it. And part of me thinks that those are moments where, especially when we sing of what happened to our Jesus that the Holy Spirit witnessed, who is in us as we sing, that's not just our emotion. I think it's his. I think it's him also responding within us. So if you've not been to a midweek before, we do this a little different than than a Sunday. And um, if you haven't been in a while, just maybe a a quick reminder. Part part of what we're, we're really wanting to do and lean into is the presence of God to have an encounter with him. Now, the presence of God's everywhere. He, he's over and under and through all things, as scripture says. But there's also certain reality in the Bible that tells us there's something unique about his presence in, in certain times and in certain experiences. For example, the Bible says that where two or three come together, there he is in their midst. There's something different about when we come together with the expressed purpose as a group to want to experience God. 
The Old Testament also tells us that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. There's something different that God does for some reason when we are praising him. He says he just, he hovers in, he camps in, he lives in that space with us. So part of what we try to do on, on Wednesday nights and midweeks is we want to create a space where this idea of encounter, we want, we want to have a, a different encounter with one another. Maybe slow the pace a little bit. It's why, you know, most of the year we have pizza and dinner that we do together. Tonight it was ice cream because it's cold out in summer and, you know, but we're trying to have a different encounter with each other, not just the quick come and the quick go and the in-between service exchange. And, but we also want to have an encounter with God. That this isn't just simply another church night to be a part of, but we want to come and say, God, we, we do. We want to be people who are what we sang. We love you, Jesus. And even if you're here tonight and you're like, I don't know if I love Jesus, that's fine. He knows he loves you. Like, just stay. Stay in the journey, and eventually, I trust you'll realize that he loves you, and you'll start to fall in love with him. That's what triggers our love. But that's why we're here, because there's people that love him. We want to encounter him, and we want to encounter one another. And uh, you know, we have, since we've done the, the staging that we do here, we don't have all the, the stage and everything on the floor like we've been doing. We'll get back to that at some point. But I don't even like being up here on the stage. I, if I could be down there on the floor and, it, and you could see me easier, I'd be down there on the floor with you. I feel like this isn't where I want to be. I want, I want this to feel more like, even with a few hundred of us, I want it to feel more like we're just having a conversation. Like this is, this is what I would share. These are the things I would say to you if we were just going out for coffee at Starbucks right now. And so it's not even so much a, a sermon from me as it is, the, these are literally the places I try to bring to you on a Wednesday night that, that I'm just, I'm reading through, I'm wrestling through. They're the places that God's right now, real time speaking to me about, and I'm trying to understand what to do with it as a follower of his. So less, less pastor, preacher, much more just I'm fellow follower, trying to figure it out too. And these are the places that God's just speaking to me and working me over right now as I'm in his presence and in his scriptures. So... As we're here on Wednesdays, I want you to, this is a little bit of a church word, church concept, I want you to make this your prayer room. You know, Jesus talks about this idea of having a place and a space where you seek him. So make this your room. You, when, we, when they say, hey, stand with us and worship, you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to get up and go to the other side of the room where it's a little bit darker, more private, go ahead and do that. If you, if you feel like, you know, some of you, maybe even your church background, your tradition, you, you like this stage became something more and you would find yourselves on your knees maybe praying. If you want to do that, do that. I mean, this is, this is a space where we do what's natural and what feels appropriate to pursue God and to encounter him. So I don't want you to feel like you just got to go through the, the motions of, okay, you stand now and sit now and be quiet now because he's talking now. And I mean, you know, don't, don't get too noisy while I'm up here. That's going to get weird. I've got the mic. I can get louder. But I just, I want us to feel comfortable. This is a space where we're trying to encounter God in, in a genuine way, in a real way, not just have motions that we go through. But I, I want to share a thought for you that really it, it started with Brett. You guys know Brett works at the doors? Hey, Brett, are you in here? Where are you at? Make a noise. Okay, he's all the way in the back. So Brett had mentioned something to me recently that as he was reading scripture, just a thought he had that I kind of laid in you on Sunday about, about Jesus and his throne and standing versus sitting. And as, as we chatted for just a couple minutes, probably, right, a few weeks ago in the lobby, uh, that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of going, all right, well, I want to lean more into this passage and this verse. I just felt like God was drawing me to it, and, and I didn't know why until the last couple of days, and he hit me with it. I'm like, oh, man. I don't know if, I, I, hope, I hope scripture for you is, is a regular part, but here's what will happen sometimes in the Bible. You'll read the Bible, and it's, it's just really encouraging. Sometimes you read the Bible, and it's just really confusing. You're like, I have no idea what that meant. And sometimes you read the Bible, and it's just like sucker punch. You know what I mean? Those moments where you're like, oh, 
you, you just know like a good father, God's, he's trying to bring some correction into your life and he's using his word to do it. And like a good father, when he brings correction, it's not punitive, but it is discipline. And there's moments where he's speaking. Like this is one of those where I'm like, I don't know why I'm going down this rabbit hole. And then it was like, oh, that's why. So, so here's a thought. What at this exact moment right now do you think Jesus is doing? Okay, somebody's reading my notes. All right, he's sitting. He is sitting. I want to give you a couple of places. There are a litany of them throughout the scriptures that tell us that at this moment, on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection, is that Jesus, after his ascension, sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Let me show you just a few of them. Book of Colossians, book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Put these up on your screen. I'm going to show you just a few places where we see this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, through the prophets, and in many times, in various ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, just finish the sentence for me. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All right, the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians tells us the same thing, but I just want you to see a couple different examples. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is what? Okay, he's seated at the right hand. So right now, literally, the Jesus who was crucified and the Jesus who rose again is sitting on a throne that we give some description of in the book of Revelation, but that's what he's doing. He's sitting on his throne. So here's the question. Jesus, who is king of all creation, Jesus is king, why does a king sit on his throne? There's a couple reasons a king may sit on his throne. One is because it's a time of peace. He's just, he's ruling in calm. He's ruling in a season of peace. There's no reason to be up. There's no battles to fight. There's no wars to do. There's no siege to defend against. The king sits sometimes because it's a season of peace. Are we in a season of peace? Not a trick question. No. World's in complete turmoil. Apostle Paul even describes it this way. He says, these present days, this world groans in agony, waiting for the day of redemption, waiting for God to come and make everything right. We're not in a time of peace. So, so Jesus isn't sitting because everything is what it should be. A king sometimes also sits out of not just peace, but passivity. Sometimes a king will sit because they're just neglecting their duties as a king. They're irresponsible. This was David in the Old Testament. This was a time where we're told that King David was not off to war, quote-unquote, at the time that kings go off to war. That was when he got himself into trouble. In, in his passivity to not fulfill his duties as a king, he found himself lusting. He found himself looking where he shouldn't be looking. He found himself falling in love with another man's wife, having him murdered, and then having an affair. All kinds of nonsense occurred because of his passivity to his role as a king. This is also not God. So here's one other reason why a king may sit and why I think our king sits. The book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8 says this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. For the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead... He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief, 
And the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything, everything done in it will be laid bare. So he says, don't, don't be fooled. The day of the Lord will come. In other words, here's what he's saying. He goes, God is not slow in keeping his promise to come back. There's going to be a day that he will do this, that he will stand up again. But did you catch the reason why he hasn't yet? One word. Patience. Sometimes a king sits because it's time of peace. Sometimes a king sits out of passivity to his role. Sometimes a king sits, and our king presently sits because he's patient. Not because he's slow, not because he's unfaithful to his word, but because he is patient. Not because he's unaware of all in humanity that is broken, but because he's patient. Patient for what? Wanting every single person to have a chance to know that there is a God, that his name is Jesus, and that he is wild about them. Because once he stands up to make everything right again, that opportunity is done. And so he's patient. Have you ever, have you ever had a time where your kids have done something where they got hurt or you thought they were hurt and you were sitting down and you were relaxing and then all of a sudden you turned into Flash Gordon? Like some of you just, you tip the scales a little bit more panicky parent, and some of you are like, their limb would have to be cut off before you moved. You're like, blood's good, you're fine, suck it up, right? And others of you, you're like, there's a bee around him, run! I mean, how many, more panicky? Just be honest, okay. And you're like, no, they gotta lose a limb before I'm moving. Okay. The rest of you, I don't know, you just haven't figured it out, I guess. But we have, my wife and I, Nicole, we have some super, super incredible friends, and the dad... I've never met a more panicky dad. Like when his kids, their whole life, they're, they're, all, they're teenagers now, their oldest son's 16. When their kids, even to this point, if dad thinks something happened to them, like he goes into absolute panic mode. Like, the, like we joke as group of friends about this all the time. It's like, oh boy, when's Joe gonna lose his nonsense on this trip? Because there's this one time, I'll never forget years ago, we're sitting out in this, they have this like lake house up in Caseville and we're sitting out in this big raft and we had the parent raft and we had the kid raft. The kids weren't allowed on the parent raft and so all the parents are on the parent raft and we're just, we're relaxing. And then one of the boys, he, he sees on the beach, he starts crying out for something and nobody knows even what's happening or what he's saying. All I know is that my friend Joe heard his son scream, and this is one of the stories that we tell all the time and laugh at him for. He jumps off of this raft, and it's a raft, right? And there's like eight people on this thing. You can't stand up and put all your pressure on a raft and just walk like you're on ground. The whole thing starts doing this. Everybody's drinks are flying everywhere. People are falling off the backside of it. He's clumsily trying to get over everybody. He's like, Connor, Connor! He's paddling through the water, gets up to the shore, runs up to Connor. Well, Connor was screaming for his dad because he was mad at his little brother that ate the last popsicle. That's all that happened. There's literally nothing that happened. So this was just him throwing a little tantrum, not him having a, a bad moment. But, th- but this is what we could do sometimes as parents. Like, like because there are kids, we, you know, whether you have to wait till their limbs are off or whether you move sooner than that, usually if you think something's wrong with your kids, you're going to get up off your seat. Here's the point. The number one way that God describes himself in relationship to us is as a parent But there's a whole lot of limbs getting cut off in this world. There is a whole lot of ache and a whole lot of pain of his sons and daughters. And if that continues to have him stay in his seat as a loving parent, a loving father, more loving than you and I know how to be to our kids, and yet for all he sees happening, he still stays in his seat, it must take something incredible to get him up off of it. 
There are two things in the Bible that tell us he gets up of his throne for. I'll show you one of them. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19. Already alluded to it. This is what John once wrote. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. His rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And if you skip down, it says verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is, this is one of the pictures in the Bible that we get of the time that well, Jesus gets up from his throne. And it's when he comes to wage war against hell and against evil and against everything that is broken and with his authority and with his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he will right everything that's wrong and return this world to what it was intended to be. Return us fully to what we were intended to be, to who we are intended to be. The one thing that we get a picture of in the Bible that gets him up off of his throne is when he's ready to put his foot down and say enough is enough. Now I bring everything back to its intended glory. But there's one other spot in the Bible where we actually have a picture of Jesus standing. And it's the only other spot. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 7. And some of you may you already know what this is probably, but stay with me. Acts chapter 7, verse 54, tells a story of, this is post-Jesus, he's been crucified, resurrected. This is the early assembly of people coming together around what becomes the church. And one of the, the first martyr of the faith named Stephen this is what happens before he's pelted with stones until he breathes his last. Verse 54 of chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, this being his confrontation of them, his correction of their wrong ideas of who Jesus was, and even the, his rebuke of them for crucifying Jesus, it says, when they had heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, say it, standing. Not sitting at the right hand, standing. He looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me ask you this. Do you think the way that you live out your pursuit of Jesus, do you think, do you think it makes him get up and take note? Do you think it makes him stand from his throne and pay attention? And so I was wondering, well, what, what made him stand? I've, I've taught this before and read it many times, and I saw something I've never really caught before to make a connection with. I, I used to think that the reason Jesus stood is because he's being martyred. You know, he's standing in, in awe of the fact that this man is, is having his life taken away from him in this moment. There, there's other theories. Here's one that I read actually this last week. There's a famous pastor wrote an article on this passage of scripture and this is what he says he says Jesus stood that he might judge those who trampled his prophet to then judge Stephen's persecutors and I don't think that's actually why he stood 
Because if that's why he stood, there, all of the disciples ended up being martyred in horrific ways. I mean, Jesus' own brother, who became one of his followers, was bludgeoned to death, and that didn't do it, and so then they took him up on a roof and threw him off. I mean, there, there were other men and women that died by the hands of others for their dedication to Jesus, and there's not an account in those places of Jesus standing to judge the, the killers. And, you go, and you go, well, it's, it's because of his respect for Stephen giving his life and having his life taken. Again, there's other accounts of men and women having their lives taken from them, and I don't see an account alongside it of Jesus standing. So, so you got to wonder, what, what is it about Stephen that made Jesus stand up from his throne? Because the only other time he's going to do this that we know is when he's going to come back. But he does it for this. There is something in this passage that's only recorded in one other place in the entire Bible in a similar kind of situation. Luke chapter 23. Then two other men, both criminals, were also led out by him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then they divided up his clothes and began to cast lots. You see it? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and then fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. Here's what I wonder. And it's speculation. I don't know this for sure. Is it possible that Jesus stood? Because in this moment... What Stephen did is what Jesus did. Is it possible that he embodied the core tenet of who Jesus was, which is a forgiving, gracious God that even as they drove the nails into his wrists, he said, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And Stephen, as rocks are bouncing off of his forehead, his abdomen, his kneecaps, his throat, says, do not hold this against them. Could the it that got Jesus up out of his throne in that moment to acknowledge Stephen in that crucifixion of his own be the fact that Stephen, like Jesus, embodied deep, unhuman-like levels of forgiveness to what cannot be forgiven without the power of God? I just wonder if God didn't sit there. Jesus is in his throne. The Father is on his left side. And he sees all of this happening and and watches, watches his follower say what he said, which is forgive them even as they're killing me, and stand and go, boy, That's my boy. That's how you do it, Stephen. That's what I did. If you want to be a follower of mine, you embody my level of forgiveness. There, there is a level of forgiveness that we are comfortable with that doesn't usually go the level of forgiveness that Jesus exemplified. Our level of forgiveness is, well, yeah, I'll, I'll forgive, but, but not that much. I'll forgive, but not that thing. I'll forgive, but not what that did. I'll forgive, but not that person. We have levels to our forgiveness that tends to stop it shy of what it is that Jesus did for us and the incredible amount of forgiveness that he offered us even while we were taking his life away from him. 
And, 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 I, and I, I would never demean any of the things that we've got going, because some of us have small offenses that we've got to learn how to forgive more easy. And some of you have some very deep, deep things right now that you're like, I, maybe you're even thinking, like, don't demean what was done to me. This is, I can't just go casually be like, oh, I forgive you now. This isn't to demean it, because you could say, as well as I could say to you, you don't know what was done to me, and you don't know how unfair it was, and you don't know how much it hurt, but here's what we know. We know what was done to Jesus. We know how unfair it was, and we know how much it hurt him. Our measure of forgiveness cannot be measured against what's hurt us, but what hurt him. It cannot be measured against what was done to us, but what was done to him. I just wonder if part of what drew Jesus up in acknowledgement from his throne, think about that, that the God of heaven stood from his throne because he saw Stephen do what was at the core of who he was and what he came for, which was to offer a forgiveness that is absolutely inhuman. But Paul also said, remember the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in you, which means we don't simply just have the instruction or the mandate to live out that kind of forgiveness. We actually have the ability to. We actually have the power to do that. You know, we, we've called this whole thing here encounter, and I, I, will, I will just tell you, I think one of, the, one of the ways that you and I will most live in an actual vibrant encounter with God will be the moments that we exemplify the Jesus-like kind of forgiveness that he did, that Stephen did, that I think lifted our Savior from his throne. And I think the opposite's true. You want to block the encounter? Live with a hard heart. Live with a hateful heart. Live with an angry heart. Live with an unforgiving heart. And you will, by effect, you will block the ability to have the fullness of encounter with God that he wants you to have that I think you want to have, that I want to have, that we want to have. The Apostle Paul, let me show this to you. Book of Ephesians, he, he once warned about what we do with our hearts and the product of it. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They're separate from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? Hurting of their hearts. The separation from God is because of the hardening of their hearts. The more we harden our heart, and one of the first times and first places and fastest places that we will guard and harden our hearts is against offense and pain and hurt. And the more we guard our heart, the more we push away the encounter of God, the more we push away the experience of God, the more we push away the presence of God, the more that we harden our hearts. So my question is simply this, who needs that kind of forgiveness from you? Like, who's a name that needs some kind of forgiveness from you? And, and not just, not trite, simple forgiveness. I'm talking like Stephen being stoned to death kind of forgiveness. You and I as followers of Jesus, we should be living out regular examples of forgiveness that aren't just merely confusing to the world, they should be frustrating. It shouldn't make any sense. Like, people should be baffled at the levels and the consistent levels of forgiveness that we are willing to offer up because he did. Forgive as you have been forgiven. That's what he offered us. And so I would just, I I would ask you, I would invite you to put a name in your head because we've all got little offenses and maybe maybe some of us just need to learn how how to do the more quick forgiveness. It's not a big deal, I'll let it go. Some of us do a really good job of building up offenses. I do that, that's me, that's my personality. I'm a scorekeeper. 
I'm super competitive. And it's really broken at times in relationships because then that competitive nature is like I keep score. Like some of us just do that and some of that, that stuff is just, a lot of that's just easy. We can just go, this is dumb, just dumb. How can I hold that grudge when the Lord forgave mine? So some of that we can just get rid of. But there are bigger things. There are things that you cannot forgive on your own. Like there's no trite little go do this, go burn this piece of paper, and then you'll have forgiven people. Like I've got, I've got no tactic like that to give you tonight. The kind of forgiveness I'm talking about is the stuff that only happens at the soul level, the heart level, and it only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. So who's that? Who needs that? Even if it's only at the beginning. So get a name. And maybe some of you don't have a name. Maybe some of you are really, you're just nailing this. You are living the forgiveness of Jesus. But I bet many of us could come up with a name right now. Let the Holy Spirit speak that name to you. Now here's the truth. I have a name. And given everything I just said, I'm telling you, this is where God's working on me. I'm not giving you a sermon. I'm giving you how God's working on me. I, I don't want to forgive. And I think sometimes I hold on to a lack of forgiveness because it's my way of punishing. It's my way of getting back. So I, I don't assume that even if you've got the name, suddenly you're like, oh, I just feel all kinds of snowflakes and butterflies and unicorns and bunnies. I'm going to forgive now. I don't expect that that's what you feel. But do you have the name? Here's what I'd invite you to do. In the book of Matthew, Jesus once said, if you, come to, if you come to the table and you have ought against your brother, and you leave your sacrifice at the table, at the altar, and you go make that right. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. This isn't an altar. It's a stage. But we can turn it into a spiritual moment, a spiritual altar. And what I want to invite you to do is if you've got a name I would invite you to come up here and leave the name here. And you take communion and remember that that's what Jesus did for you and I. He took the sin and he left it there. He left it at the cross as far as the east is from the west. Because there is no way that we forgive unless we are constantly and consistently mindful of what we've been forgiven of. The only thing that Stephen did in that whole passage is he stared. He stared up into heaven. That's why the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. You realize even Jesus had to set his eyes forward so that he could endure what was in front of him, what he was going through. I'm telling you, man, at the end of the day, you know what's gonna get Jesus up out of his seat for you and me? It's not gonna be how loud we sing. Sing loud. It's not gonna be how much scripture we memorize. Memorize scripture. It's not going to be that your moral deeds outweigh your immoral deeds. Pursue holiness as he who called you is holy. What will get him out of his seat is when you and I embody the inhuman, deep forgiveness to our brothers and sisters or any fellow man, woman, or child that does not deserve it for what they have done, but we grant it because we didn't deserve it when we offended him and he gave his blood for us. That's what gets him out of his seat, I believe. So here's what we're going to do. As we go to the last two songs to worship him, 
just want to invite you. Maybe you've got a name. You come up here. Take a moment. Just say, God, I want to leave the name here as a way to say, lead me into forgiveness. Change my heart into forgiveness. And then you celebrate how he did that for you. Maybe you don't have a name, but you come up here still nonetheless to celebrate that God, in his great mercy, his richness of compassion, took every stone that came to him, every nail, every whip, every thorn for his great mercy for you and me. Jesus, thank you for your love, for your truth, your grace, your cross, your throne that you're sitting on right now. Thank you for the promise and the hope that one day you're getting up from it. You're going to come back and you're going to fix all of this. You're going to take what's upside down and you're going to turn it right side up. Thank you for the example of Stephen, for the life of Stephen. Thank you for Stephen that is a real man who one day we get to meet, we get to talk to him. God, help us to continually to know how to appropriately interpret scripture. As we read stories like this, accounts like this of you standing up, the stoning of Stephen as he's forgiving those who are killing him. We're trying to understand, I'm trying to understand why you would do that. It seems to make sense that it would be attached to him modeling the depth of forgiveness that you exhibited. And so God, if that's true, then I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would just nurture that truth deep, deep, deep inside of us. That we would have a longing to please our Father with such levels of obedience with such levels of love poured out to you and then to our fellow man. But would you, through the power that is in us with your spirit, give us the strength to release the debts that are against us as you release those against you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.